customs or royalty in general. What I did know after being indoctrinated such is that I didn't want a king, nor I didn't understand why anyone would ever want that themselves. I, I assumed the superiority of America's governmental system was self-evident. However, two years ago, when I was given a glimpse of this reality pertaining to kings and kingdoms, I gave it a little bit more credit than I had previously done when we lived in Cambodia. A minor, low on the totem pole minister of athletics and youth education came to endorse and speak at a soccer tournament we were hosting at the ministry campus where I worked. Weeks of preparation were given to receiving this minister. The day of the event dawned and it surely was spectacular. A red carpet was rolled out. Everyone was in their nicest clothes. The stage adorned with flowers and pageantry Custom after custom was done to please and be polite. Every important city official was there to greet and show this person honor. There was nothing out of order. And this was all done for a low-ranking minister. I could only imagine what would have happened if the king himself had showed up. The multiplication of the pomp and circumstance could hardly be measured. And this is just a faint glimpse of what King David is pointing us towards with the heavenly king he sees before him. The accolades, the authority, the dominion, the prestige, the power, the magnitude and grandeur of this king is boundless. It's limitless and that is all because it is appointed by Yahweh himself and what we are to take away from Psalm 110 is this the greatest confession of human history is also the greatest comfort to and confidence of the Christian Jesus is Lord let me say that one more time the greatest confession of human history is also the greatest comfort to and confidence of the Christian. Jesus is Lord. As we turn our attention back to verse 1 of Psalm 110, I want to point out something very important for how we are to understand this psalm. Notice right before this psalm, at least in my Bible, there seems to be two additional lines. The first, the title or summary of the psalm, which in mine, my Bible reads, Sit at my right hand. It, it's a fine enough title. There's really nothing wrong with it. But it's not inspired. It's an editorial addition to help orient us to the passage. The next seeming additional line that appears is that the passage begins with a psalm of David. This, however, in contrast to the editorial edition, has been part of every manuscript that has ever been found of Psalm 110 and is very important to how we understand the psalm's meaning 
and actually interpret it correctly. This was not merely a scribal tradition that archaeology supports, but is how Jesus and the first century Jewish, Jewish religious scholars understood this psalm. Because of this, I would argue that the line is the beginning of the psalm. In other words, it is part of the psalm. It is not a later addition or editorial comment. And if that is true, then when it says in the singular possessive, my Lord, it is David who is speaking. David is saying it is his Lord. Therefore, it is David's Lord he sees before him. Well, why does that matter? Why is it important? Well, it's important because of two reasons. First, the psalm became understood to be about the Messiah. This psalm was about the Messiah. And as we will see in a second, that that is exactly how the first century Jewish religious leaders understood this psalm. But secondly, if we back up in David's timeline, he is also given a promise from Yahweh in 2 Samuel 7 that his kingship and his dynasty will never end. He is supposed to be the big cheese, so to speak. And one of his future sons would sit on his throne forever. David then was supposed to be recognized with prestige, prominence, and honor in Israel's history, summarized by the statement in verse 16 of 2 Samuel, where God promises to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's future descendant who would sit on his throne came to be understood as the Messiah and hence the importance of Psalm 110's prophecy. The future coming king would subjugate all nations and bring Israel to global prominence and freedom for, for theocracy. But though this Messiah was great and would achieve incredible things for Israel, he would still be David's son. And we must understand for the Old Testament culture, there was an inferiority associated with that that also made David the superior in honor, accolades, and actually the, the Messiah, his subordinate, because he was his son. And I, I know that sounds rather odd and is quite an odd concept for us in our culture, but it's how it worked in theirs. And maybe a funny way of thinking it about it is like Ford Motor Company. When we hear Ford, we're always going to think of Henry Ford, the Model T, the assembly line, etc., etc. No matter how innovative, no matter how many challenges and hurdles they overcome, no matter how profitable they become, the successive CEOs will always dim in comparison to Henry Ford. Because after all, he gets the highest honor because his name is still on the car. And that's like the throne of David. David's name is on the throne. So his son will be inferior to him. 
So with that in mind, in Psalm 110, verse 1, David, the one with greater honor, is attributing lordship, honor, and superior authority to the Messiah, to one of his descendants, by saying in verse 1, my Lord. Well, that creates a little bit of a predicament for us then, doesn't it? Thankfully, this predicament is exactly how we're supposed to feel. But what does it mean? What is, what is David trying to tell us? Well, actually, the New Testament is going to tell us. And this reminds me of being back in math class as a kid where you'd work out a problem and then you'd check the answer in the back of the book, right? Anybody have that? I don't understand why they made math books like that, where I was like, oh, just, just look in the back. Because as we look to the back of our book, or rather forward, Jesus pushes this exact predicament upon the Pharisees in Matthew 22. Listen to Jesus' line of questioning to them as he reads this psalm. Verse 42 of Matthew 22 reads this. He asks, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they reply to him, the son of David. Because that is their understanding from 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 110. It's evident. So Jesus asks another question in verse 43. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And then Jesus goes on to quote verse 1 of Psalm 110 right here from our passage. And just in case they don't get it, he asks them another question in verse 45. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see the tension? You see that predicament there? And the answer is because he's both. The Messiah is not merely David's son, because in this statement, David understood that the Messiah is far superior to himself. There is something extraordinary and supernatural going on here with David's Lord. And yet, nonetheless, Matthew 1.1 does affirm Jesus is the son of David. And so must we. But he is not just the son of David. He is the preeminent, eternal son of God, appointed by Yahweh to be the Lord of the cosmic universe whom David rightly regards as his Lord. In Psalm 110, David finds himself to being the first or, or one of the first few to confess the great mystery of Jesus' lordship. And that is precisely what we need to take away from the second line of this psalm. The identity of the Messiah is a descendant of David who simultaneously outranks him because he is the true Lord. Okay, there, that's his lordship. But what does that look like? What, what, is, what does this entail? What is he going to do with his grand title? 
The psalm actually breaks this up nicely into two different offices, which come from two different declarations from Yahweh to David's Lord, the Messiah. The first office is king when he tells the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Messiah is bestowed the position to sit at the Father's right hand. It is the seat of highest honor and privilege. It is enthronement to executing governance and dominion throughout the entire kingdom. Yet it comes with a promise until I make your enemies your footstool. It is the Father who is going to subjugate the nations under the foot of the Messiah. The time marker until is is not a moment when he is no longer king or will be deposed or needed or anything like that. It is the time actually in verses five to seven when he stands back up to defeat the last enemy that is death. Notice verse five calls it the day of his wrath as opposed to verse 3, the day of his power. Verse 5 brings us into the future of that moment until the Lord has made every enemy his footstool. This is exactly what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, and John gives us a picture of in Revelation 19. For now, while he sits, Verse 2 and 3 give us this beautiful picture about how Yahweh makes his enemies his footstool. Verse 2 says this, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That is the Messiah's ruling instrument. The Father gives the Son his place of prominence in the heavenly kingdom and then extends his rule by sending forth the Messiah's scepter out of Zion. And then he commissioned him with a declaration of authority in the last line of verse two. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is like a judicial announcement to the world. He is ruling now. All this amounts to saying he is the king. The Messiah, David's Lord, Jesus Christ is the king. The king has been crowned, enthroned, installed, and permitted to exercise divine sovereignty. Yet, conquest with kings, they never go to battle alone. Am I right? Though our king certainly can and does from time to time when he pleases, but, but here is not one such place. But it, it is almost as if we are expecting armies at his heel as he goes out and his, the conquest goes forward. They suddenly appear. Verse 3 says this, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garment. And part of how Yahweh is extending the Messiah's lordship, reign, and rule is through this battle-ready people. It's us. I mean, this is us. And unfortunately, sometimes war is a necessary evil 
though inevitably it comes with a lot of sacrifice and tragedy and uncertainty. And because of that, it is bittersweet sending loved ones to war, am I right? Or even going to war. You don't know if you're coming back to your family. There is a real cost to battle. Yet that isn't the picture of this army. There is no bittersweet taste in their mouth. There is no tiring from their effort. And from what I could read, that that is exactly what these last two very confusing lines of verse 3 are all about. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. They they don't tire. They they are vigilant and just ready and always there. This is a picture, is pointing us towards a spiritual reality of conversion and the advance of the gospel. And we understand this to take place in regeneration of what Ezekiel said in the 36th chapter of his book. When God God takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh and makes us willing to do his bidding and allows us to come to him freely in his grace. It is us who really come in response to the gospel. But it is only because God has worked that in us by giving us a new heart. And same with the expanse of the gospel. The messianic army goes unpeded with the unstoppable gospel we proclaim. And that is exactly what David is seeing here. The second declaration of God comes in verse 4 and is in the form of an oath, a binding promise of God and upon his nature. It is one of the surest and strongest statements in the Bible. Verse 4 says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of of Melchizedek. Now, let me address the elephant in the room before we go any further, because I know we're all distracted by it. When you drop a name like Melchizedek in church, nobody's paying attention afterwards. Am I right? So this might be the Sunday you've all been waiting for. Will the real Melchizedek please stand up? Okay, I I thought so. I was really hoping one of the teenagers would stand up secretly, but... um, No, I I don't. My goal is to not solve the mystery of Melchizedek, but simply to highlight the point of what I believe David brings him up for and why he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And let me quickly do something you probably shouldn't do in sermons and suggest a resource for Melchizedek. Don Carson has an incredible sermon uh, titled getting excited about Melchizedek. It's it's very wonderful. He does a much more thorough treatment of Melchizedek, if that interests you. Uh, As a Bible nerd, it interests me. So getting excited about Melchizedek, I, I would commend that to you. But back to Melchizedek and this priest. The second office the Messiah assumes is priest. He is a priest king, and he will assume the role of a priest to atone 
and represent the people. And the reason I believe he is in the order of Melchizedek is twofold. First, because the Melchizedek priesthood is a better priesthood. It preceded Aaron. And it could fully atone for sins, unlike the Aaronic priesthood under the Mosaic Covenant. There is no longer a day of atonement that needs to happen every year. Now, verse 3 tells us there is a day of his power that stands. It doesn't go away. And because of his day of power, he sits at the right hand of God. Now, this is exactly what the letter to the Hebrews speaks at length about. So I'll send you there if you need further commentary on that. But secondly, because Christ, like Melchizedek, held both offices, Melchizedek was the shadow and Christ is the substance. Hence, after his order, right? Abraham in Genesis 14 sees Melchizedek. He blesses him. And Melchizedek is this obscure figure that comes out of nowhere. And he's both priest and king of Jerusalem. And here we have Jesus, who in the flesh appears out of nowhere. We have his genealogy, but we really don't see it. He's doing these crazy things. And yet, out of Zion goes his scepter. He is the greater priest king of Zion. He is the true priest king of Jerusalem. But why a priest king? Let's think about that for a second. Why do we need a priest king, not just a king? Why combine the two offices? Well, I think that becomes clear when we think about their respective tasks they need to accomplish. The role of the king is to govern the people, to safeguard his own protect the kingdom from outsiders and actually exact justice from those inside when they need it done. So if we are to meet Christ only as king, how would he treat us? He would treat us justly. He would exact justice from us for our rebellious treason. Yet, if he is our priest, He can atone for our sins and represent us as the one seated at the Father's right hand. Think of it this way. Kids, you remember those times when maybe you upset your dad and you've got to tiptoe around him for a while? I know that's never happened in a Reformed home, so bear with me. But what do you often do? You kind of go over to mom. And you beg her to do something, don't you? Well, in that scenario, your dad is kind of like the king. You've upset him. And your mom is actually, you're, you're begging her to act like a priest. You're looking for her to represent you before dad. And hopefully even atone for your sins. Mom, can you, can you kind of like make it right? Can you just massage it out for me? With Christ being authorized to have both offices, 
not only does he uphold justice with his right hand, he simultaneously extends mercy with his left because he atoned for the sins of his people. We do not flee from the one who atones for our sins. We do not have to be scared of our king. And in fact, the same simultaneous tension exists with Christ. At the one point, we understand we have sinned against him. But at the same time, he is exactly who we need to run to for comfort and help. There is no one else because he atoned for the sins of his people. There is no one else to look for, for pardon, for sin. The king governs and pardons because he himself is the atonement. And that is the reason he is in the order of Melchizedek. He is both priest and king. The last and final thing we must address now and ask is, well, what do we do with this? What are, what are we to make of all of this? Well, positively, we must come to the same conclusion as David and say, my Lord. Before we say that, say more about that, I want to address one thing we are actually incapable of doing, though. And that is this. We cannot make Jesus Lord. We do not make Jesus Lord because he already is Lord. And he was appointed and declared to be so by the Father, who had the authority and the right to grant him that office and title. Does that make sense? Here's what I mean. Every contrary, contrary to Jesus, every other so-called Lord, like Caesar, was made so by other men. They derived their status and power superficially, especially as long as their kingdom stands, right? When we say Caesar is Lord now, we kind of laugh because they were... They, they were a drop in the bucket of world history for a couple hundred years. We laugh at that because, no, he's not. Well, the kingdom of Christ is eternal. And the one, the divine source who appointed him is omnipotent. It is all authority has been given to him. And that is exactly what he says in Matthew 28, 18. Our Lord was appointed by the Father and reigns forevermore. And with that comes an important implication. Jesus is Lord of the world, whether they acknowledge it or not. When the Romans would say Caesar is Lord, it was a statement of absolutes. It was an ultimatum. They did not care how one felt about it or whether it was appreciated or not. It simply was. So you ought to swear fealty and pay hom worshipful worship homage, that was a mouthful, worshipful homage to him. So then the Christian manifesto flew in the face of their creed because there was they were saying, 
Well, there is actually one who outranks Caesar, and rightfully so. He is the man, Christ Jesus. In, in fact, Caesar tried to kill him, but he couldn't. He rose from the dead. That man is the true Lord. This also, in some degree, informs and instructs our idea of repentance, doesn't it? Repentance and how the apostles would call the world to repentance is an awareness and admission of actively rebelling against the king and begging for his mercy. But praise be to God, our king is also our priest. He loves to forgive. He is not a cruel or vindictive ruler that treats you as if your rebellion threatened his supreme sovereignty. No, he is a gracious, loving priest king. So in doing that, we find ourselves rightfully and accurately saying along with David, my Lord. Not because he is ours solely, but because he, it is the true acknowledgement of our submission to him. David could have grasped at his own legacy and name, but he submitted himself to Christ by saying, my Lord, and so must we. As I draw this sermon to a close, I want to impress upon us not only the theological gravity and depth of this confession, Jesus is Lord, but also the significance it has to bolster our faith and give us confidence in the face of any opposition we may encounter where we rightly proclaim Jesus is Lord. Maybe this is an odd way to illustrate it, but it, it helped me. My, my stepfather is a criminal defense attorney. Thankfully, I've never needed his services, but he would share stories of his kids as they grew up. And, you know, we're just kind of like creating teenage, teenage mischief that would get the cops involved every once in a while. You know, kind of like nothing serious, but kind of like jumping off the Jupiter Bridge over here. Something I know no teenager in here knows about. But, um, however, in the moment of police confrontation, his kids would say to the cops, my dad is a lawyer. I know my rights. I refuse to speak with you. Now, don't parse out the illustration too far as to miss my point. But what they said to the officers was a bold assurance and confidence in who their father was and his ability to protect them. And this is exactly what we have in the statement Jesus is Lord in the face of opposition. He is reigning right now. His enemies are being made into a footstool right now. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. It is a shame that evangelicalism shies away from these passages because it is our ultimate confidence. He is the Lord. Caesar may do what he wants with you. Our culture may ridicule and mock you. 
The devil may try and persuade you that your sins are too much. Suffering may discourage and depress. But in the face of that, we have great assurance. And we can say, Jesus is Lord. And he is my Lord. Spurgeon summarized it this way. Therefore, there is no cause for alarm. Whatever may happen in this lower world, the sight of Jesus enthroned in divine glory is the sure guarantee that all things are moving onward toward ultimate victory. That is because the greatest confession and ultimate confidence of the believer is expressed by Jesus is Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is for you. He is your Lord. He is your King. He is your priest. Let this be our daily comfort and confidence. Because if this is true, everything turns on this statement. Amen. Let's pray.